Welcome to the Internet of Things Security Institute podcast. Privacy Matters with Nicole Stevenson. I'm joined today by Peter Kosmala. I've been privileged to know Peter for most of my time in the privacy profession. He's a data privacy leader, public policy professional, and international speaker. Peter helped lead the International Association of Privacy Professionals in its earliest days, first as Director of Certification and then as Vice President. He oversaw the creation of the Certified Information Privacy Professional designation, a world-first professional credential in data privacy. Peter then took it to the next level, leading the expansion of courses, exams, and continuing education across five international certifications. Much of Peter's work in his post-IAPP days has involved senior executive roles in the advertising and digital advertising space, which I have no doubt has been a balancing act between privacy protection and other organizational objectives. It is a delight to be on the air with you today, Peter. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here with you, Nicole. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, I think one of the greatest privileges of working in the privacy space is the longevity of the connections that we make. I met you not long after moving to Australia when the notion of having a privacy professional association here was just taking shape. Do you remember? I do indeed. Those were exciting, so, but early times. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were, and they were, they were sort of nervous times as well. The idea of bootstrapping privacy into something special for this region that could be relied on by professionals um, was quite daunting. Um, I feel that we were quite lucky, though, weren't we? Because there were a number of professionals in this space who had time around the traps and were able to lend a hand. It was really incredible. I mean, the the profession early in, in its earliest days, and this was certainly true in the States where the IPP was based from the start and where the community really consisted of a bunch of, um, you know, a, a, a tight-knit community, but very senior level privacy officers, compliance professionals, you know, hadn't really diversified yet um, glo- globally, although clearly there were people all over the world doing this. And the challenge early in, in the you know, early years of the IPP was to, was to broaden that mandate and to make it genuinely international and part of that mission was realized through the certification because we, you know, part of the job here was not simply to help promote privacy as an issue, but also as a profession. And toward that end, to, to establish, you know, educational and testing standards, create a body of knowledge, uh, you know, a series of testing protocols that everyone could look at as, you know, the essential knowledge of the field. And yet that couldn't be tied to any one jurisdiction because, as you know, there's very significant differences between different jurisdictions around the world. And we always saw the Asia-Pacific region, and Australia in particular, as being critical to that. Uh, Australia has a deep history in privacy, which you know better than I. And I was privileged to be out there in the field in those early days where we were looking to establish affiliate programs or, you know, or beachheads, essentially, in other parts of the world. And that's when IAPP ANZ was created. And I had the pleasure of meeting you and folks like Brett Carey. And, of course, the legendary Malcolm Crompton, who remains a dear friend to both of us, uh, who is a former privacy commissioner himself. And it was, you know, it was bringing together a, a group of talented people uh, to really make this happen locally, um, but authentically locally. So it wasn't really driven from the U.S. as much as, as locally in each jurisdiction to build that community, then tie it into an umbrella organization 
And even though I left the IPP in 2011, it is, it's, it's with such great pride to see how much it's grown since. And that's the effort of a lot of people. I was just privileged to be part of that effort early. But, you know, we just uh, there was just the IPP Global Privacy Summit um, in Washington, D.C., and that was 4,200 people gathered in Washington, many of whom are from around the world, not just the U.S., but everywhere, including our friend Malcolm. And it was great to see him there again. I think that one thing that's that's unique and special about privacy professionals, um, no matter what they're doing in the data protection space and the privacy space, is that there's a humanities element to the work. It's it's not just a technical or a functional job. Um, often we spend a lot of time trying to build culture, grow privacy culture within organizations, and we talk a lot about things like privacy mindset. And one of the things I often do when I'm trying to encourage privacy mindset, um, and certainly I know our colleagues do the same, is, is you have to find ways to make privacy relatable, right? So for me, I, I try to inject humor to open the discussion up to the other people in the room, the people who aren't privacy professionals, uh, as opposed to just chatting to them in their capacity as employees and in terms of the work that they do. And I've often asked things like, look, if the privacy culture in this organization was a food, what would it be? And, you know, the responses can be brilliant. My favorites so far are that the privacy culture is mushy peas and vinegar. Um, <laughs> and another is, is that it's a sloppy joe. And <laughs> I think it's, it's great because it starts the conversation, right? So It does. I'd like to try it on you, if that's okay. but. I would like to go a little bit broader and relate to something that I know you like, which is jazz. That's right. So, Peter, if what's happening in global privacy right now were a jazz tune, what would it be and why? Well, I love this question. Thank you, Nicole. And you're absolutely right. As you know, as many of my friends who know me, uh, I'm a huge music freak. I'm very eclectic in my taste, as you are as well. I, I tend to make, you know, psychedelic garage rock my favorite idiom of choice, but I'm a hardcore jazz fan too. And as you know, um, this summer, I'll be attending uh, a giant in the festival circuit, which is the, which is the Newport Jazz Festival, a tradition that's been going on since the early 1950s. That's not how long I've been going, but I've been going for about eight years straight. And it's a great celebration of the genre. It's, it's America's original art form, you know, born from New Orleans. So I love the question. And I've actually, it actually plays into a lot of the thinking that I've been doing lately, uh, which is around these issues of, of privacy culture. And, you know, privacy is an expression of a group, of a people, of a community, of an organization, not just a set of laws and regulations, which are, you know, equally important, but sort of the origins of that. And I've used a number of different metaphors to, to help explain that, as you, as you allude, in helping to sort of get people engaged and thinking about how they're looking at it within their organization. I've used, for example, a, a science fiction metaphor, um, a Star Wars theme, for example, to explain, you know, the different models of privacy that I see in the world. So I love this. I'm, I'm going to do that. The same thing, though, but with with jazz. But rather than give you just a single song, if I can if I can take the license here of giving you actually three songs that I think explain, you know, the culture of privacy today. I see really three dominant models in terms of the approach, the oversight model. And this is not to suggest that these are the only ones because there's a lot happening all over the world. But I think these three bear mentioning because they, I think they indicate, well, they show a lot about how, how the models were, were developed from a cultural standpoint. So 
Two of them are within the same continent, North America. The other is within another continent of Europe. So I'm, I'm of course, referring to the U.S. and Canada and Europe. And I think these are really three interesting, in, interestingly, you know, different um, but significant approaches to how privacy is approached on a global scale. And they say a lot about, you know, where the rest of the world may be headed, gravitating to one model or the other. So I'm going to describe to you in jazz terms why each of these are interesting and why that's important. So let's start with the U.S. So with the U.S., if they were a jazz band, I would call them a hot jazz band, like a Dixieland or early, <laughs> you know, early roots jazz. And the song is Ain't Misbehavin'. Ain't Misbehavin'. That, that classic Fats Waller song, the great stride piano player. You know, it's a very whimsical, a very jubilant sound, and it's kind of naughty, too. I mean, a lot of his lyrics were, were kind of sexually suggestive. Other times they were just plain mischievous. This was a song that he wrote in 1929 when he happened to be in jail, not for any felony. He had simply fallen behind on alimony payments, but he was talking about like, hey, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just in here. I just got, you know, I got apprehended. But I think it's um, it's not just the musical style, but it's lyrically what he's saying. Like, you know, we might be doing some things here, but we're not, you know, we don't mean wrong, and we're just kind of playing around. And it's that kind of like loose, kind of loose. I wouldn't say loose attitude, but that kind of like that kind of playful notion that's giving you a sort of a, a wink and a nod as to what's actually happening with what they're doing. And that's kind of the that's kind of the spirit in the U.S. where we've kind of gotten away with some things over time, but we try to do our best, but we're not overly fixated with it. And we kind of improvise at times. Um, but then I also thought, you know, that's a great song, but maybe the genre isn't exactly right. Maybe what the U.S. is today, certainly, is free jazz, which is that totally edgy, improvisational genre. Um, Ornate Coleman, Pharaoh Sanders, Sun Ra, it was big in the 1960s, and some people still play it today, but it's not for everybody. It can be very atonal, very edgy very experimental. It pushes the envelope and it challenges the listener. I happen to like it, but not everybody does. And I think that's sort of, again, the U.S. approach. It's like it's kind of pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. I think the world looks upon it with a little bit of disdain, like I wish they would do something different. But this is where they are now, as much as that may evolve next. Next, I look at Europe, the EU in particular. And here, the genre is swing music, big band, Lots of pieces, huge sound. And the song is It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing, the classic Duke Ellington number from 1931. <laughs> and I like it because it's got it's got some energy, it's got some swing to it, but there is kind of a there's kind of an interesting twist in that title, which is like, if you're not doing it the way we're doing it, then you're not really doing it right, are you, right? You're not swinging unless you're doing it this way. And that's kind of like the suggestion in the GDPR framework, which is we really know privacy better than anybody. So if you're anywhere in the world serving European uh, data subjects, you need to be getting on board with this program, with how we've, you know, how we've outlined our framework. It requires lots of pieces, however. You know, every big band orchestra has horns and strings and percussion and guitar and sometimes vocalists can be 20 or 30 people. It's not something that's produced very easily, very complex, not exactly portable, a hugely elaborate production, quite expensive. But that's sort of it. It's a lot of moving pieces. And if, you, if you're in that band and you're not doing your part and you're falling behind, then you're going you're to get in trouble. 
you're going to throw the whole thing off. And that's sort of it. It's a, it's a great musical production, but it's incredibly complex. And that's Europe. And then the model that I find is, is situated kind of pragmatically between both of these worlds, as you well know, a country that's dear to me and I know to you as, as a native is Canada. And I think in Canada's example, it's bebop. It's that sound that came out of the post-war era that's very, that's rooted in the, in the traditions of jazz, but is also playfully experimental as well. This is the music of Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and Charlie Bird Parker. And the song that comes to mind for me is one of my favorite John Coltrane songs called My Favorite Things. But it's got a really pleasant rhythm and tone to it. And it just steps outside of the comfort zone every so often to make a point or two, but then comes right back to the roots and traditions. And I think in that way, it's very adaptable, it's very pragmatic, it's very, um, it's very evolutionary in how it takes the sound forward. And it lasts a long time. So it doesn't really, it's not quite as chaotic as the US genre and not quite as structured and cumbersome as the European, but it's a nice tight unit. It's a quintet or a quartet and it's banging out great songs. So those are the three examples, but if you were really to beg me for like, okay, well, that's great, but really I wanted to have one song. Like, what is the one song that defines the, the time that we're in? For me, it wouldn't be so much a song, it would be an album, and that would be uh, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, which many jazz historians and critics and even fans consider to be one of the greatest jazz recordings ever made, and in fact, is the best-selling jazz record of all time. It's still the most successful and that's because it's very accessible. Um, it's kind of got a really nice, smooth West Coast U.S. sound. Um, legendary people are playing on that record, uh, from Cannonball Adderley to John Coltrane, who I just mentioned, Paul Chambers. You can see where my favorites are. But it's really a nice, smooth sound. And I think the parallel here is it's historic because it's one of the greatest albums ever created. And I think we're at that moment now in the global privacy perspective. I mean, this is the most dynamic, the most urgent, but also the most critical time that I've certainly seen in the years that I've been in this profession, and I'm sure you have too, where there are so many issues at play. And these are issues that have been in play before, but it just seems like this is a time quite unlike any other where we've had, you know, we've had incidents like Snowden and Cambridge Analytica that's really lit up the public consciousness about what is really happening with data and who's in control of it. But also some political dynamics. It's becoming discussed in you know policy forums and in government committees with more frequency and perhaps more scrutiny than it has before. And certainly now that we're in the era of GDPR, it's forcing a lot of organizations to look at privacy, some for the first time, in an effort to really elevate what they're doing. So even though the sound of the title, Kind of Blue, may suggest something melancholy, I don't mean to suggest that like we're in dour times, but we are in challenging times. And I think you got to be musical about it. You got to have the, you know, the aptitude and the deft skill and sense of improvisation that a jazz musician does and also recognize that like the best jazz recording ever, this is an historic moment and an historic time that we're in to do privacy right in moving to the future. The the notion of kind of blue sits with me though, maybe more in that that melancholy or hopeful way because championing privacy as a topic isn't an easy thing, is it? it you know, within organizations, privacy, um, privacy folks like you and me, we can, we can sometimes be met fairly coolly or with a degree of wariness, um, almost as though we're about to bring headaches to the table as opposed to opportunities. 
So <laughs> I'm wondering what you think about that. Do you think the vibe about privacy is changing in organizations at all? You know, are we, are we seeing everyone kind of bopping along to the soundtrack? Um, and if so, where are you seeing that change the most? Well, that's a great question too. It's like, how do you, how do you advocate and evangelize this issue? Um, importantly, get that budget that you need because it invariably comes down to that. And it's really, it's funny, like everybody, no matter where you sit in this equation, if you're an advocate, a regulator, a business, you know, fundamentally you need budget and you need people to do what you need to do. If you're going to be an organization, you need to assign the right people to this, make sure they're properly trained, certified, and they know what to look for and they can handle those issues directly or delegate them to someone who can. If you're a regulator, you know, you need the, you know, you need the breadth and scope of authority and the actual people to do the investigating and to do the validation and to look into, you know, alleged misconduct and, and seek appropriate recourse for that. I think in the old days where it was creating a more basic awareness of the issue because there was some understanding of data privacy, you know, in a social context, in an everyday sort of everyday living and working context, um, you know, there was less of an awareness of what the need was or even or sort of the need in a, in a professional role or that it even was a profession. And now I think there's broad understanding that it is, in fact, a profession that's only just started, I think, in the last few years. And that's with great credit to the IPP as an organization and under Trevor Hughes's leadership as a global organization. But, you know, everyone needs to do, you know, has a piece of this to, you know, not just to do it better, but make it better known. And I think maybe there's some resistance or some lack of awareness inside organizations that has dissipated as a result. I think now today people know, and it's unfortunately sometimes by virtue of these incidents that they read about in, in the media, a data breach like Equifax or, you know, the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which I think brought it to, you know, to everyone's awareness. What is Facebook doing? What is Twitter doing? The, the tools and services that a lot of people use that they've been thinking with much greater you know, sensitivity and awareness as to the data and privacy aspects of that. So I think now it's more of, well, I get it now as an issue. I'm, I'm more in touch with that. But what do I literally have to do to, to do better at it? What, what models can I look at? What tools are at my disposal? What organizations can help support me? And who are the longtime veterans in the field that have been blazing the path on this that I can emulate? You know, what's interesting there is that there are some really obvious linkages now between say, data security as a discipline and um, the data privacy or personal information privacy profession. And the examples that you gave of, say, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Cambridge Analytica, what, what you see there is that the, the public discourse around privacy has perhaps been more about what's happening to my personal information. Is it secure? Is it safe? Is, is what's going on within my reasonable expectation? And because of that, we do see now security and privacy professionals working much more often hand in hand in an obvious way around data privacy. And I wonder if that's perhaps elevating privacy profile in a very positive and proactive way in organizations. I think it has. And I think, um, you know, one of the one of the passions that I have, too, apart from looking at privacy a little bit more deeply in terms of its social and cultural origins and and how it, you know, how it arises to that point of, of becoming an actual formal legal framework. It's just the notion that particularly in the online arena, that everybody's got a piece of this really. And I think that, um, you know, I think for maybe too long in the United States, there hasn't been enough focus on what the end user really wants 
uh, or is thinking about or is concerned about. But I think where the, you know, where the regulatory picture has sort of swung now is I think in recognition that, you know, companies and, and, you know, the perception is they're largely American companies like the major platforms, that there's been more attention now given to how Europe is approaching this issue under GDPR. And it's swung the pendulum much more over to the favor of the data subject, you know, the data subject and privacy as a fundamental human right. You know, those are essential tenets of the European system. Uh, for data protection has been from the very beginning when the directive was first put together and put in force in the late 1990s. And, and it informs still the essence of what GDPR is now doing and has been enforced now for just a year. And that's that's caused a lot of organizations to think about not just their privacy practices, but what is my relationship with the data subject? What am I what are the conversations I'm having? Are there opportunities there to solicit you know, input and preference uh, more than I'm doing now or that I just haven't been sensitive to? It's, it's, it's encouraging them to think of that relationship more thoughtfully and meaningfully to make sure that, you know, yes, to the letter of the law, those, you know, the, the, the expressions of choice and the, you know, the access and redress, getting access to my information if I want it or need it or having it deleted, the right to be forgotten, you know, having it erased, that all those rights are there. But, the, you know, the larger notion is, am I, am I really having, uh, you know, a meaningful conversation with the data subject to the extent I can? I think that's all healthy, and I think it's very useful, for, certainly for the smaller and mid-sized organizations that need to need to you know elevate their practices and formalize them more. But I think at the end of the day, you know, privacy is an issue. To really achieve the privacy protection we all need to, everybody has to enter that picture. So it's not just the companies that have been have, you know have been accused of malfeasance, or it just seems like they've been untoward in their practices. Uh, certainly, they've got to clean that up, and they've got to do better. And companies that are starting up now or, or are becoming more data-driven have to be smarter about that. But, you know, government needs to be smart, too, in terms of how it's approaching policy and regulation, because there are entire economies here. There are entire business models here, and they're not arbitrary. They support jobs. They support livelihoods. There are communities that thrive on a lot of the technologies and services that are built around this as well. And the consumers themselves, the data subjects, I mean, they need, they, clearly they need more strength. There's a broad perception that they don't have enough voice that, and that needs to be enforced more through law and regulation. I get that. But that can't be at the expense of creating better literacy among data subjects and, and end users as well, because you can have the most incredible you know, regulatory structure and a set of technical controls. But if an end user is still using 12345 as their password, which, by the way, most are, as a lot of security surveys reveal each year, you know, if they're susceptible to social engineering exploits where they get persuaded by someone on the phone that they think is real but actually isn't, if they're not tuned into some of these practices that, you know, online criminals and hackers and others deploy, you know, you can have robust laws, but they're going to get circumvented. They're going to get um, compromised by some essentials that really start at the end user level. So all I'm sim simply saying is this has got to be a triaged approach to really go where we're headed, which is, you know, companies stepping up absolutely with sounder practices, governments entering the picture with smart and responsible leg legislation and regulation, but also consumers getting smarter on this too. And everybody's got a piece and it's not just incumbent on companies to do the education and the rectification, but everybody. So it calls upon all of this, better literacy, better controls, better practices. Yeah, I really take that point, particularly with how quickly the digital economy is advancing, right? And we don't see that that pace is going to slow, which which brings me to 
this notion of, you know, dialogue at, say, you know, state, national levels, where we are seeing a resurgence of that regulatory privacy dialogue now too. You know, you and I have both been around the traps for a while, and we've seen a number of countries establish privacy laws, but but it's a bit different now. The context is different. And and I think this is good. It's wonderful to see a resurgence of these discussions at at those really high levels. But I am a bit concerned that there's a lot of attention being paid to the GDPR as quote unquote the new global benchmark. Um, because while it might be really appropriate for regulation or for regulating the EU, I'm not necessarily convinced that privacy is a one-size-fits-all kind of discussion. And I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Peter. Well, I, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, the GDPR is a, you know, is a strong framework. It's, um, it's timely. I mean, it was inevitable that it would come to this point. It's right for the Europeans. I mean, it, it, came, it came from a, you know, a history, the, the European framework, of some very significant information abuses that occurred in the post-war period and, you know, continued on into the 60s and 70s. And, some Eastern European, you know, countries and dictatorial regimes, whether this was, you know, Romania under Ceausescu or Hungary under Tito or the East German Stasi secret police. These weren't examples where information on data subjects was being used. You know, it wasn't like, oh, you didn't process my app out quick enough or, you know, you're, you're looking at my shopping preference. It was more like information being used about their political affiliation or their labor union membership or other activities, you know, at a social level information that was being used against them, um, in some cases to imprison them, in some cases to punish, torture, or even kill them. So these are very, these are very egregious examples, very extreme examples of where information was abused. And that history is what, really what informed the European framework. It's what inclined them to codify privacy as a human right in the, in the Council of Europe charter. It's, you know, it's in the essence of the, of the directive, and it continues on into the GDPR. But that's not necessarily a history that's been experienced elsewhere in the globe. Um, I'm not going to say that in the U.S. we've been, you know, that we've never had such incidences of information abuse. Of course not. But it is a different history. And I think that um, where GDPR starts to skew a bit is with this notion that it's essentially, you know, applying privacy restrictions extraterritorially. And it's not like the only example of a law doing that. There are other examples but in essence, because it's requiring, you know, every organization around the world that's interfacing with European data subjects in any one of the 28 member states, it effectively turns those organizations into European businesses. I mean, suddenly you're in all respects and certainly with all respects to, uh, to data protection, you're a European company. And that, um, you know, that can be disturbing, despite the fact that you may have been doing privacy successfully for years and you've, you know, you're not, it's nothing new to you. You have standards, you have documented procedures, incident response, good training, certification, et cetera, it's still not sufficient in, in Europe's eyes. So I think one issue is the extraterritorial nature of it. Um, two is the fact that it's sort of established itself as, you know, as a de facto global authority through, through adequacy. I mean, if you're not considered adequate for the purposes of data transfers, you know, you're not up to snuff at all. And that's something that, uh, that's right. If you it doesn't, if you don't have that, what is it? It doesn't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. Isn't that what you <laughs> exactly said to me right. before? Exactly right. <laughs> so the band leader is saying, you know what? You're not adequate. I can't turn that into a jazz lyric, but that's the same. It's the same notion. 
And and it uh, you know that's a that's a declaration that they're making of their own accord. That's not something that's negotiated. That's not something that's decided collectively by you know a world body, but by Europe alone, by the Commission. Um, you know, so that's a challenge. And you know, even a even a country that's been doing that's been doing privacy quite respectfully for years, like Canada, you know, their adequacy status could be under threat uh, as they review their federal law because it's now with GDPR suddenly not consistent with with Europe. And, you know, Canada, despite having its unique model, was originally inspired by Europe when it when it put PIPEDA as a federal law together in 2000. So it's, you know, it's at risk of losing that adequacy standard unless somehow it sinks closer to the GDPR. So, but, you know, that can be challenging as well. And, you know, there's there's other things having to do with, you know, the right to be forgotten. We don't want to debate that forever. But, you know, that's it's it's almost technically unfeasible to completely delete yourself from the online environment these days. I think, you know, I think a more appropriate term mm-hmm. could have been the right to delinking because that would remove, you know, connective links to any kind of uh, you know, any kind of data that's out there on you. But it's difficult for any company or organization to faithfully accurately represent that they've actually deleted everything about you from any appearances, certainly if it's a web based example. Um, if it's a proprietary database or something clearly within a boundary of control, I, I would be more forgiving of that. But you know that's problematic too. But I think you know their right to be forgotten has such more, uh, so much more of a powerful tone to it that you know that, that it just excites policymakers to say, "Wow, we can we can really do this." So they do. Um, and you know, and it it goes on in some respects. So it's not that. It you know it's a bad law or it doesn't have use. Of course it does. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of value here. I think that uh, the value is mostly in, as I said, getting countries, uh, sorry, getting businesses around the world in tune with what a, you know, a real stringent framework is. And, it, you know, it elevates them. But as I said, there's a lot of companies that have been doing this well. And I think, um, and, you know, they may take umbrage to that. Now, there's, there's one example I'll give and then I'll finish. But, you know, the notorious example, and these happen to be all American companies, but you know, there was there was an example just in the first year of GDPR rolling out, where a number of of U.S. based publishers and media companies simply stopped offering you know news services, web pages, content services online to European data subjects because they felt that they could not meet those requirements. And you know, this included significant names like the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, uh, New York Newsday, and others. And I think a lot of the folks uh, in the advocacy community, certainly, and GDPR supporters, certainly, consider this to be non-compliance, that it was simply a rejection of GDPR and that they should be punished for it. I actually see that as resistance. And it's not, you know, I'm not per se endorsing it, but I don't look at it as pure non-compliance because these are companies that are essentially saying, you know what, we're not new to privacy. We're not new to the Internet. We've been publishing in a, in a privacy responsible way for years, in some cases, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years, um, what's wrong about what we're doing other than it's just suddenly not consistent with a European standard. So we're doing it fine. Thank you very much. We're simply not going to ascribe to a standard that you've developed. And so we're withdrawing from that. And I think that, you know, someone who takes, has a quarrel with that is probably better, you know, better set to take that quarrel to their to their member of parliament in Brussels and not the company to say that, you know what, when you act policy, this is sometimes what happens. This is one of those unanticipated outcomes that actually isn't terrific. And maybe if we had been a little bit more balanced or measured in our approach, or we made this a more genuinely multi-constituent conversation, that sort of thing would not happen. 
it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the months and years to come, if this GDPR momentum that we've seen continues, or if we see other other models. And you know, my my uh, my suspicion here, my endorsement, is Canada's model because it's much more pragmatic, it's much more adaptable, it's a co-regulatory, you know, model. It's uh, it's collaborative, it's principles based, just like just like Europe. But it's just not as rigid and bureaucratic and extraterritorial in its in its essence. Uh, still has some gaps. Still has challenges. Still is susceptible to some of the same political complexities that all of these net, all of these frameworks do. But I think offers a greater hope for addressing all of these dynamics moving forward: the the business models, the technology developments, the consumer behaviors, and the politics for moving forward. And yeah, I like your point about sort of self-determination in modeling, right? Because it's much like no two households are the same. Similarly, no two countries will be the same. I've enjoyed this so much. We probably could talk for another hour. And I, for our listeners who don't know the nature of our conversations generally, I would just like to share that this is the kind of thing that we shouldn't be waiting for, you know, 10 years to discuss. This has just been such a, a tremendous way to, to talk about so many meaningful things um, for both of us, both in terms of our, you know, our day-to-day jobs, but also, you know, in terms of what we're passionate about as privacy professionals and people. Um, What I would like to do is, is take your suggestions that um, that you raised earlier on in our chat around um, the jazz tunes that really resonate in terms of what's happening around the world. Um, and I'm going to publish those with the show notes um, after our discussion today so that those who are listening can tune in and really get a feel for what you've been talking about. I, I love it, Nicole. And, and thank you for this opportunity to discuss it. This, is, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. It will be interesting to see how all of this plays into you know, a growing public awareness uh, of privacy is one issue that is is important and can be as important as everything else in the policy spectrum that affects people's lives and businesses in fundamental ways, whether that's immigration or labor or economic issues. Um, data privacy is critical. And how these policies get determined and from which viewpoint will be really interesting to see. If, if people simply gravitate to the momentum that's already been created by Europe, you know, will that continue? And Will others just simply emulate that, or will they take relevant cues from it, but, de- de- but you know, develop more more authentically, um, well, approaches that are more authentic to their cultures and, and their economic models, uh, but which also manage to elevate the standards in ways that are good for consumer privacy protection, but also ensure that other you know social and, and economic benefits are realized. That would be a great goal to aspire to. That's certainly what I strive to. And it's time to pick up our instruments and play a tune in that direction. (laughs) Thank you so much, Peter, um, for all of your insight today. And I look forward to carrying on this conversation off air. Have a great day. The Internet of Things Security Institute supports best security and privacy practice in the deployment of Internet of Things technologies for smart cities and critical infrastructure. To find out more, please visit iotsecurityinstitute.com.